Well, if you turn on the news, uh, any news channel, Israel's going to be um, at the forefront of, of any topic, Islam, Hamas, uh, and everything that's going on since the attacks, what, a little over a week ago from this recording, uh, brutal, heartless, monstrous to, uh, attacks there out of, out of Gaza, and today... Pastor Emilio and I on on um, Christ and Kingdom, we're going to wade out into some deeper waters uh, and talk about not breaking down news and current events, but talking about the philosophies and the 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 deeper um, ideas that that control what is what is going on in our world today. And so we're going to talk about Islam and the reality of terrorism and uh, all those topics. We're going to talk about just war um, and looking at these current events. So I'm your host, Pastor Mike Tiemann from the Rock Community Church in Southern California, joined with my good friend, Pastor Emilio Ramos from City View Church in Frisco, Texas. And before we get started, Emilio, you you guys have some exciting news as a church. Why don't you just um, kind of share what's going on there? You got some new new events, new tech you're using. Um, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, well, it's exciting until you understand who's behind the tech, right? <laughs> if anybody knows anything about me and technology, you know that uh, putting me, putting technology in my hands is a risky proposition. But you're right. Um, at City View Church, we just started meeting at the uh, Legacy Christian Academy, which has been a total blessing because uh, we are using both their um, uh, a big cafeteria room to do Sunday service, which is a really beautiful place. Um, and also uh, their thir- for Thursday night, we have a Thursday night service where we're doing uh, a, a church at the academy, as we call it. Um, and we're doing an interactive Bible study. And so I have a Promethean board where it's a digital board and I can interact on the board with Lagos and I can write on the board on my notes and, and things like that. So super excited for what the future of that looks like. And uh, if people are in the Frisco area, uh, feel free to come up, uh, for, join us for one of our services or even for a Thursday night theology class. Uh, and right now we're currently going through the theology of Colossians, but you know, obviously, we are also looking at uh, doing a whole host of topics on apologetics and theology and things like that. So, a lot of a lot of great things going on there, and um, we had a good turnout this past week. Uh, and I'm praying that we uh, will just continue to uh, be faithful as a church and grow, and uh, and just you know do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. So, yeah, we're. We're really excited about that, and I'm I'm really excited about these Thursday nights because it gets it lets me show the church how I think in terms of my notes and my exegesis, and I can really interact with people and almost bring them behind the pulpit, so to speak. So they can see what I'm looking at, and uh, and that's always a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah it's gr- good stuff. That's excellent. Yeah, I saw some of the pictures that your wife had posted on social media, um, and you might have mentioned it, but I I, I maybe miss it. What are you currently teaching through? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm doing the, um, uh, well, on Sundays, we're going through Romans, and we're in Romans wow. chapter 5. Matter of fact, we're in one of the toughest sections of Romans right now, because Romans 5, uh, verses uh, 12, uh, all the way kind of to the end of the chapter there, is kind of a locus classicus for uh, one of the hardest sections in Scripture exegetical, just in terms of our 
federal representation in Adam and, uh, and then our federal representation in Christ and what that all looks like. But Romans chapter five, it's been, you know, uh, the book of Romans obviously needs no, you don't need to really build up the book of Romans, you know, (laughs) (laughs) as a teaching, as a sermon series. So, uh, but yeah, just going, you know, uh, just slowly and methodically through Romans. And that, that's been a, a great time. I've never preached the Romans before. So, um, I feel like I know Romans like the back of my hands, but you know, but uh, because I've interacted so much with it, I've never done an actual verse by verse exposition of Romans. So this is a, a first and, and a beautiful time for me. And then Thursdays we're doing the theology of Colossians, and uh, we're just you know that book right there. I think is so remarkably relevant for even our times today, as uh, the Apostle Paul is seeking to refute any and all uh, worldly and man made philosophy that seeks to stand in antithesis to the, the the biblical worldview. So it's super relevant because it gets to a lot of the concepts that are floating around today, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're going through right now. That's excellent. Well, as we've been comparing notes uh, over this, this past week, uh, we probably in reality have two episodes we're going to, we're going to record. And, and this first episode, we kind of wanted to focus on, on Islam and and the nature of things that uh, that flow out of that, and then you know our our dispensational friends come out of the woodworks whenever Israel is in the news, um, and you know that's probably uh, episode two. There's going to be some overlap, of course, and as we we move uh, forward in the discussion. But you know what what is what is the role of Israel today? You know, um, I had a good friend the other day talk, comment on Israel being God's covenant people. Um, what does that, what does that mean, um, in, in our current day and age, but that's probably going to be episode ep- the next episode. Um, and this first episode, uh, I, I kind of wanted to, to start off and just get Emilio just on, on, on his soapbox here of talking about the nature of our present evil age. Um, we live in an age of, of absolute corruption and it's almost like, uh, history repeats itself, you know, and there are genuine evil people throughout the world that seek to do monstrous acts of, I mean, I don't even, I don't have the vocabulary to put with, you know, how, how you can behead a baby in front of a mom and then burn them all alive. Um, and celebrate that as a triumph of your God. And so, uh, before we get into the specifics of, of Islam and you spent a huge portion of your, your life studying into, into the topics of Islam, you know, to the point of, of you were, you were kind of done with it. Um, and so why don't we just start with, Hey, where are we at? What's this present evil age? What's the theology uh, be behind that. Yeah, I think that that's a fundamental question that a lot of people don't ask. When you see what's happening in the headlines right now and the current events and things that are going on with Israel, and now, you know, it's got the whole world again kind of on edge. Everybody is sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of, you know, focusing on whether it is uh, the horrors and the, atro- the atrocities of evil that are happening in Israel, or whether it is the threat and the and the uh, you know the possibility for a wider uh, escalation, uh, and some, of course, uh, talking about the possibility of world war and all of this, and it just gets us all 
thinking. It gets us all uh, really um, concerned about the kind of world that we're living in. And it is a reminder, I think, to us that we live in exactly what the Bible says we live in. We live in a age, in a, uh, a, a, a historical time period that the Bible describes as the present evil age. And we are told in numerous places that the present evil age is destined to fade away. To it's destined to, uh, it is destined to, in a sense, to uh, basically to disillusionment. And and ultimately, we know that that transpires uh, through judgment uh, and through the return of Jesus Christ. And so, it, it's important that any time we see events like this happening in the news, whether it's a nine eleven moment or whether it's a full-scale war like what we're seeing now, even though in comparison to other wars, let's say, this is kind of a small excursion because, uh, you know, uh, let's be honest, I mean, uh, you know, going after a group like Hamas is not the same thing as something like what happened during World War I or World War II or something, okay, not even the the Gulf War. Uh, But it is nevertheless war, and it is nevertheless a reminder to us that we're not living in the kind of world that is conducive to global peace and global unity, that there's always going to be strife. There's always going to be, um, you know, these flashpoints uh, between nations and between ethnicities and between worldviews. And that's fundamental because uh, we can go into the geopolitical controversies of what's gone on in Israel between Israel and the Palestinians and the history behind that and going all the way back, as many of them do, all the way back, not just to the founding of Israel in 1948, but even much further back than that uh, to what happened during the Crusades and the Ottoman Empire and all of that stuff. Uh, But at the same time, it's not, I don't think it's even healthy for Christians to try to resolve or to try to untangle those historical issues. I mean, how, how can we? Uh, all we can do is recognize that this is but another iteration, not only of the present evil age, but what that means for us in terms of a pilgrim theology. I think this just illustrates for us that, in fact, um, you know, our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is not of this realm. And our ambition in this world is not to try to uh, achieve some sort of global peace at a geopolitical level, at a geophysical level, but that our interests, our ambitions, and our uh, priorities as the people of God is to continue the Great Commission <laughs> and to bring people from the nations into the nation, which is the church, the royal priesthood, the chosen race, which is not speaking of any ethnicity, but now it's speaking of a spiritual uh, distinction, of course, for those that are in Christ. And so it's a reminder, really, of of the antithesis between Christianity and everything else, because we recognize that neither Palestinians, Muslims, nor Israelis and Jews have the proper worldview and have the proper uh, uh, view of the kingdom and of this world um, that that they need to because of the, the simple fact that they don't have a biblical worldview. So it's just, to me, uh, Mike, it was just a a reminder yet again of how, because we live in the present evil age, you will have throughout, I believe, throughout the entire inner advental period, you will have what Jesus referred to in the Olivet Discourse 
as a world that consists of wars and rumors of wars of pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places and things like that. And I, I do not believe, obviously, that that is exhausted at 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, but uh, I do believe that that is sort of symptomatic of the birth pains that we will see throughout this entire uh, interadvental age leading up to the return of Jesus. So the, the, the fact that we live in the present evil age, for Christians, it just means that when we look out into the political world, we should expect for rulers to be controlled by a ethical, moral, and political system that leads to strife and injustice and suffering and oppression, regardless of who started it, regardless of what the actual manifestation of that is, we live in a kind of world that is capable of incredible uh, brutality and barbarity. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, uh, Mike, I recently did on our, on Red Grace Live on YouTube, uh, recently did an episode on barbarism, <laughs> which I thought, who does an episode on bar- uh, barbarism? <laughs> and it didn't get a whole lot of views, but I tell you, people started email, uh, people started texting me the episode and saying like, is this kind of what you were talking about? <laughs> you know, uh, this kind of barbarity that we're watching right now on, you know, whatever news outlet you're willing to watch. <laughs> and I thought, yep, you got it right there. This is what Romans 1 is telling us. A world consigned to judgment, a world consigned to wrath is capable of just unspeakable and uh, mind-bending uh, barbarity. And so I think that's all owing, though, to the greater idea of the present evil age. Yeah, amen. I'm actually teaching on on Second Timothy three thirteen this this Sunday, and it says, "While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." You know that is a it's a reality of a day and age we're we're living in. You know, it's Paul's sitting here in prison, waiting his his execution, writing to his younger. Uh, <clears throat> you know, child in the faith to, to run hard and, and basically come and die with him. Uh, you know, and, and he's telling him there to stand strong. He's encouraging him. And then he says, you know, yeah, he, he just encouraging him there. So you had mentioned, uh, that, um, we spend a lot of time in the conversation of, of why, you know, why is this war? Why is there division between the Jews and, 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 Palestinians or the Arab world, um, and you mentioned, you know, there's there's a lot of bad blood, you know, between them from the Crusades and everything, you know, beyond that and before that, and and uh, you had mentioned that it's it's you know kind of probably not healthy uh, for Christians to to talk about that. Can you kind of expand upon your reasoning there? Well, I wouldn't say it's not healthy. All I'm saying is that I think it's a kind of a fool's errand mm. if you're trying to interpret the events of the Middle East by tracing back, well, where did the strife begin? What's the origins of it? And who's entitled to the land? And how much land? Uh, all I'm going to say is good luck with that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Great uh, point. Because that's not, the, that's not the way that I think Christians need to cope. And, you know, uh, so that you're online looking for, you know, uh, pundits that are agreeing with your position and people that give their own versions of history and what happened and all of that. Uh, not that there's not valid historical data but I just think in terms of interpretation and how does the Christian interpret what's going on? And I think that we, we should interpret it through the mind of Christ. Mm. 
And, uh, and that would mean that we look at things in this eschatological fashion. We look at things through the redemptive lens. We look at things through the, the lens of, uh, you know, what is, what, what is true about the age and world in which we live. And those are all spiritual realities. Those are not, uh, there's, there's a reason why, you know, um, the strife that has existed, not only between Jews and, and Muslims, but between all ethnic controversies and ethnic strife, right? Because we are told in Psalm 2 that God will hold the nations in derision. Yeah. And so this is part of God, in a sense, making a mockery of the nations who rebel and have rebelled definitively and, and, and comprehensively against God's anointed. And so we, isn't it amazing, we speak about how innovative our world is, how technologically advanced our world is, how much, how much uh, you know, globalism we have today, and yet here we are with all our technology, with all of our advances, with all our ability to communicate and to talk and to have instantaneous information, and yet what are we doing with that innovation, that quote-unquote progress. Well, it doesn't look like progress right now. It just looks like our technology is, is, uh, is, is really something that we leverage against each other in this world uh, for more and more uh, friction and hostility and enmity between the nations. Mm-hmm. And uh, y- you think about, you know, how serious this all is. Um, and then you you sort of back up and say, well, you know, just a couple more elements, <laughs> and we can be in a really really bad place as a as as a world yeah. because um, you know there is nothing right now uh, guaranteeing that tomorrow we're not going to see something happen in in the in in the uh, in the Taiwan region, let's say, with China, which would drag America into some sort of conflict there, possibly. Uh, there's no, absolutely no guarantee that this is not going to escalate, right, between Iran and Israel and then involve somebody like Russia in that equation. And so I look at all those things, and again, we can interpret these things geopolitically, but for the Christian, we ultimately have a duty to interpret these things biblically, spiritually, and eschatologically. And, uh, you know, because we understand those things may come, they may go, but the truth of Scripture will not. And that doesn't mean, Mike, that we constantly are trying to, you know, as they say, pin the tail on the Antichrist or try to <laughs> to find a one-to-one correspondence between what's happening in 2023 and what the Bible says in the book of Daniel, right? Yeah. But it does mean that we do have a realistic view of the way that this world works and, and why. And uh, and remember, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 um, none of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom, right? And the rulers of this age do not understand the wisdom of God. And uh, for that reason, they will always remain antagonistic, uh, and they will always uh, be in antithesis to the biblical worldview. And so uh, it's, I think that is the way that Paul wants us to think ultimately about these things. Yeah. And you have mentioned there's, there is a hermeneutical principle that's driving our biblical interpretation, which then drives our view of present uh, circumstances and, and what's happening on a global sta- scale. And there's also other uh, interpretations to talk about our, our dispensational side of, of the camp that 
that um, <clears throat> comes out of the woodworks when, uh, as I said, when Israel's involved. And we're going to talk about that in our, our, our next episode. And let me pivot back to <clears throat> um, Islam. So we have this radicalized jihadist group um, that is, you know, waging war upon upon Israel, calling for the death of of all Jewish people. Um, can you um, is 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 their worldview there? Is that can that be rightly categorized as Islamic, or is there a difference between them and? Um, other Islamic traditions, if I could phrase the question that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have the Islamic element. Um, there's obviously the political element, but there's also the Islamic element that's involved there, where in, you know, the Islamic theology, theology of jihad, um, you know, there there's a very clear uh, sort of doctrine of jihad that is taught in Scripture, or, or excuse me, in the Muslim scriptures, which is in the Quran, yes, but also, although they wouldn't consider, you know, the Sunnah to be inspired, the Sunnah, the, the translation of Ibn Ishaq and then Ibn Hisham, which is the example, the life and example of Muhammad, in the Sunnah, you have a very, very clear doctrine of jihad that is taught. And from the Sunnah, you can very clearly see that Muhammad himself was a conqueror. He was a military leader. And he himself was involved in countless uh, uh, murders and slaughter and, and, and killings, a slaughtering of Jews and many others, and even uh, Muslims themselves slaughtering each other. Let's say in the apostate wars that is mentioned in the Hadith literature of Sah- Sah- um, Sahih Al Buhari. And when you look at Sahih Al Buhari, which is the biggest collection of of Hadith literature. You, you just need to go to volume four and five of that nine-volume set to understand the hundreds and hundreds of references in the Hadith to violence, in the Hadith to jihad, to, again, fighting these Muslim wars. Many of them were the apostate wars where certain Muslim groups were leaving Islam after Muhammad died, and they wanted to no longer follow the different leaders that were rising to power, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, Abu Bakr, Omar, or um, or Ali, they didn't want to follow these kind of uh, uh, caliphs, these leaders of the Islamic uh, community, uh, and it became a big sort of uh, political mess. Uh, and so, you know, you have in Islam a very clear doctrine of jihad, which strictly, strictly speaking is a global war where they would teach that everything outside of a mosque is the the house of war and everything in the in the in a mosque is the house of god and when muslims engage in warfare it is altogether a spiritual and theological exercise that is not to say that each individual Muslim has a complete self-conscious idea of what's going on jihad and jihad-wise, but there's a general consensus that when Muslims are at war, they are fighting for the, for the honor of Allah, and they're ultimately fighting for the allegiance uh, of Allah, which they subordinate under the idea of God's oneness. And so what people don't understand is that when you know, for you and me, Mike, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Uh, but if you and I were to engage in some form of uh, self-defense, or let's say you were part of, you know, your Christian conscience allowed you to be part of the military. And when you went to war, let's say you went to the Afghanistan war, you went to the Gulf War, whatever, and you were to lift your finger up to heaven and say three and one, three and one, three and one, it would be almost completely nonsensical. What are you talking about? Because you would be shouting the doctrine of the Trinity. But for Muslims, when they engage in jihad, they often lift up their finger with one finger in the air and they yell Tawheed, which means the oneness of Allah. Now, that makes no sense to us on this side because we're thinking, what does the oneness of Allah have anything to do <laughs> with you <laughs> with you having just engaged in shooting someone with an AK-47, right? But for a Muslim in the doctrine of jihad, to yell Tawheed is simultaneously a denunciation of all earthly authority whatsoever, and that you are operating under the authority of only one sovereign, one Lord, one master, which is Allah. And so when Muslims fight in the name of, of, of Islam, whether it's individual terroristic attacks like we saw with Charlie Hebdo uh, back in France, right? Those Muslim terrorists that killed those, the cartoonists, they shouted Tawheed in the streets right after they got done slaughtering these cartoonists. And again, because it was a renunciation of, of, of English law and whether it's the police or whatever, and it was a declaration in a sense of, of a sort of a political liberation. And so it was something of a military cry uh, on the part of these terrorists. And so we have to understand that because, you know, uh, for Islam, they believe that every time they go to war with anybody, they are engaged in a spiritual exercise of jihad that advances Islam and uh, for many years, you know, I would tell people Islam is the most dangerous religion in the world uh, because only Islam has a divine mandate, the way they see it. They have a divine mandate to conquer the earth for Allah. And, you know, Buddhists don't have a divine mandate to do that. Hindus don't have a divine mandate to do that. Catholics don't have a divine mandate to do that. Um, only Islam has a divine mandate that tells them to go and conquer this world for Allah, whether by peace or by the sword, by force. And th th there's no denying that, 100% uh, no denying that. And if people want to get a kind of a, a, a sort of, um, you know, if people want to kind of peer into the mind of a jihadist, I would encourage them to go read uh, Zaid Qutb's book, uh, milestones, and uh, you can probably get it on Amazon unless it's out of print. But you know, uh, Zaid Qutb, one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, wrote that jihadist manual to show that in fact, uh, jihad is absolutely required for every Muslim. Number one, number two, jihad is pursued under three steps, uh, namely uh, immigration, infiltration. And domination. That's what he taught. And, and Zayed Qutb would say all he was doing 
was following the Sunnah, uh, was following the example of Muhammad. So he said, you can go from the Quran, from the Sunnah, and you can deduce those three points of jihad. Now, that book actually became illegal uh, in Egypt, and Zaid Qutb was inevitably hung in the 60s for attempting to assassinate the president of Egypt. But, uh, but his, uh, his points, his talking points, his theology of jihad, it, th- th- that philosophy still persists today. Yeah. So we're, we're dealing with uh, an ideology, a, re- a theology uh, that the Western mind doesn't understand. We, we separate religion and culture. We have a separation. We have our church life. We have our political life. We kind of have this, these categories, and and when we get into the the Muslim mind, they don't separate those categories, right? They're one and the same, right? Government. Well, yeah, no, that's a good point, uh, Mike. As a matter of fact, when when Zaid Qutb came to the United States of America back in the, I think it was in the forties, forties or forties and fifties, he was here. Uh, this will be kind of shocking to people, but one of the things that Zaid Qutb said about American culture that disgusted him <laughs> um, is that, number one, he was disgusted at the fact that God had no place in the public square, that, that God was hidden behind closed doors and churches and things like that but that there was absolutely no trace of God anywhere in the culture. He was not made first. And he was disgusted with women in America because of their immodesty. This is in the 1940s and 50s, if you can imagine that, when we would say America was the most modest (laughs) of all time, right? Kind of leave it to beaver kind of generation, right? Not for Muslims, right? They have always looked upon Western culture as... As, as immoral and immodest and, uh, and all of that. Um, and they don't and separate so, yeah, Christians for, from that. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for, for Zaid Qutb, that was one of the principal things that led him to write this manual and to, with Albana to found the Muslim Brotherhood was that God was not honored in Western culture at all. It, it, they, they separated him. He was in a little compartment over there. Uh, and was not given preeminence, and uh, and of course that's based on a very uh, sort of uh, detrimental assumption on the part of somebody like Qutb and the Muslim Brotherhood, and and consistent Muslims. I would just say consistent Muslims. I don't say I don't call them radicals. Yep. Nothing. I would just say consistent, actual Quran believing, Sunnah following, Hadith embracing uh, Muslims that believe flat out that we should be in a theocratic system of some kind, a caliphate, that we should be in some sort of theocracy uh, ruled by the law of Allah and uh, uh, ruled by the law of Allah, right? But, but uh, that theocratic uh, presupposition is why they view Western culture the way that they do. So, yeah. and, and that controls their entire worldview. You know, the way they look at the West, the way they look at you know, Israel, we are, um, we're infidels to them, you know, and, and pagan, uh, evil people from their, their perspective. So, so 100%. jihad, uh, what was the phrase you used? The, the, 
not not a radicalized Muslim, but a consistent cons- Muslim. A consistent Muslim. Yep. Um, what does that mean for the reality of what we would call terrorism? What what they how how would they even call it? Because they're not calling it terrorism. Well, let me just say this: um, it's complicated because what's going on today in the Muslim world is that I believe you have two different brands of Islam. You have a modern, uh, sort of updated kind of form of Islam. Uh, that I would say under that you would find nations like the UAE, you would find Dubai, maybe a place like Qatar, Bahrain. You, you can find some very sort of, I don't want to call them westernized Muslims, Muslim nations, but you have Muslim nations that are not, they're definitely not where the Ayatollahs are, <laughs> or the Shia Iran Ayatollahs, okay? Um, I would say most of the sort of uh, nominal, modernized, kind of westernized, uh, sort of marketable, and 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 that kind of of Muslim culture, um, you know, I I I personally believe it still falls under the idea of jihad, but the way that I've interpreted it, Mike, is that there is violent jihad and there is silent jihad. And I would contend that silent jihad is a thousand times more deadly than violent jihad. Uh, because silent jihad is happening uh, because what what is what is jihad ultimately? Well, jihad is in a sense the ultimate form of dawah, which is propagating Islam. And that is doing it by force, not just through pamphlets and, you know, what we would consider to be something like evangelism, right? Uh, but, but silent jihad is making pacts and treaties and, and entering into, uh, you know, economic arrangements with different nations and forming coalitions in South America and, and having very powerful Islamic, you know, sort of oil tycoons all around the world uh, bringing in more and more and more Arab and Muslim culture into the West, uh, that is absolutely in keeping within the idea of of infiltration, immigration, infiltration. And of course, for them, they do believe at the end of the day, there will be a domination. There's one thing that all Muslims would agree with, and that is sort of the eschatological view, that inevitably, Allah is going to hand to the Muslim community, Right? The, the right and the rule and the dominion over this world. And, uh, and, and you have those that are violent, they'll crash a plane into the building or they'll run through a crowded mall and shoot people, okay? And those are violent. But I, I personally believe that the more methodical, the more skilled and more philosophical branch of Islam views that as quite a threat, uh, it, it almost like you're 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 kind of ruining the plan here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're you're mess you're you're kind of showing your cards. You don't need to do that. Now, I don't. I'm not saying that what's going on in Israel falls under that necessarily, because again, that's not just strictly jihad. There are serious geopolitical things going on there that have been going on for decades. That 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 you know, is far more than just, hey, let's go commit an act of jihad against infidels. It added massive gasoline to an an already, uh, you know, torched theological system. Um, Correct. Yeah. So, 
Okay, so uh, we talked about Islam, we talked about terrorism, uh, the nature of our present evil age. Uh, let's talk about global instability, and then I would like to get into the topic of, you know, uh, Augustine brought in the idea of the just war. Um, and, and so going, going that direction. So kind of, why don't you kick us off, uh, a little bit about that? Let's, um, let's talk about what, what should our theological, uh, response be? And I say, you know, we're coming, desiring to come from a biblical standpoint, looking at, uh, nations around the world, looking at the United States and how should we respond? What's Israel's uh, right to respond or another nation's right to respond uh, in, in warfare? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, let me just say one last thing about Islam directly, and that is that uh, some time ago uh, on, on Red Grace Live on the YouTube channel, I, I recently did an episode on Islam and I draw. I I brought attention to the fact that um, that we, because of the political scene in the West, and especially with Donald Trump and the elections and COVID and everything, if you think about it, Mike, uh, we have been greatly distracted away from Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not been focused on Islam. We certainly are not focused on Islam the way that we were after nine yeah. eleven, right? And so, and I say we, I see I'm talking about culture at large, Um, you know, and so I don't want to say I'm glad. (laughs) It's kind of a weird thing, right? I don't want to say I'm glad that we're focused on Islam again, but I am at least, um, you know, I am at least glad that, that Christians don't sort of lose sight of the fact that Islam is not going away. Yeah. And and that and that we think things have quieted down. No, they have not. Um, and so that's important for us to 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 remember. Now, when it comes to just war, you know, I think just war is ultimately rooted in Romans fourteen or Romans thir- Romans thirteen and passages like that, verses one through seven, especially when the Apostle Paul makes it very clear uh, that there is such a thing as a God ordained government structure in a state that is not a Christian state, not Israel, but can be really any state, any nation, any country where God has ordained governance and wherein there is at least the semblance of justice. Every nation has it. I promise you right now, I don't care what nation you're in. You run through a fruit market and steal something see what happens to you. (laughs) Okay, I don't care if you're in Asia, I don't care if you're in Russia, I don't care if you're in Latin America, you go steal a piece of fruit from a fruit market somewhere or or something. I don't care if you're in Africa, okay? Uh, In some of those nations, they'll try to kill you for doing something like that. So, (laughs) Come to California, you're allowed to steal up to, I think... Except for California, you 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 can steal up to uh, $1,000, and then you're fine. Yeah, what's it up to now? (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's great. Keep going. Sorry. No, yeah, I mean, and so I think there in in Romans 13, you know, Romans 13 is not calling for perfect governance. I think that's a mistake that people make, is they think that Romans 13 is to be honored and it's to be obeyed insofar as 
Christians are satisfied with the rulers that we have over us. That is not what Romans 13 is saying. Romans 13 is spoken in a Greco-Roman world. Romans 13 is spoken to a people that are living under the Roman Empire, which is full of barbarity and injustice and full of oppression and, and uh, uh, imperial worship and these kinds of things. And yet, at the same time, this passage here is also reminding us that no matter how pagan a society gets, there is a sense in which God has ordained even to preserve a pagan society. Um, and, and the reason why, of course, is so that he can uh, accomplish his redemptive purposes and not allow this world to, to spin into total utter depravity and to divulge into complete and total anarchy. But I believe, rooted in the, in the covenant with Noah, we have a promise, not just a, of no more water, and not just of a coming judgment of fire, but also of a preservation, also of, in a sense, a, a sort of uh, a, a common order among all nations, uh, revealing, in a sense, right, a common conscience that is given by God to man. And, and therefore, I think that nations like Israel or anybody else, America or whatever, definitely has the, not only the, the, the right to defend themselves so much, but also even the duty, right, to punish evil. And I think um, what makes it tough here, uh, Mike, I won't, you know, I don't know what other people are saying at this moment, but I, I will not force a Christian, let's say, right, to have to buy into this political theory or that political theory. Uh, those are complicated issues, and typically the more informed you are, the more complicated it gets. But I'm not going to bind somebody's conscience that says, you know, I, I believe Israel has the right and the duty to defend itself, and so what it's doing in retaliation to this attack by Hamas is perfectly within their right to do that. I support that notion. I personally believe that. Uh, that's my position right now with what's going on in Israel. I support Israel's right to defend itself, to rid its land of as much terrorism as possible. And you know, Mike, because you and I both, we've been to Israel numerous times, and we know what it's like there. And I can tell you, when I'm in Galilee, when I'm in Jerusalem, when I'm in, uh, when I'm in areas that are Jewish populated, I feel safe. <laughs> I feel fine. In Caesarea, I, I'm great. I love it there. I could live there, right? But you start going into other regions like Bethlehem and Nazareth and Jericho and places that are heavily, Golan Heights, way up north, and you start going into heavily, you know, uh, Palestinian and, and Muslim populated areas, you don't really feel so safe anymore. <laughs> so there is a difference, you know, in that culture. Um, even though the hardline, let's say, religious Jews may look at you as a Christian as just as much of an infidel as a, as a Muslim jihadist does, because they do. Let me yep. tell you, the Jewish view of the goyim is nothing nice. Uh, it is as blasphemous and hostile to the gospel as Islam is. Make absolutely no mistake about that. Yeah, great point. And uh, put in the right situation, the radical religious Jews will kill you just as fast as the Muslim Jews or the Muslims will. So you gotta, don't be gullible there. But in terms of governance, I would, I will say that 
that you know Israel because it operates on 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 something that looks a lot more like a democratic system like the United States of America, even though it is not really a democracy. Uh, but yet there are more Western values, let, let's say, uh, that are to be found in the state of Israel than in 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 a place like uh, the Gaza or the West Bank or something like that. Well, that's that's excellent. I think I think maybe here's a good place to kind of kind of stop, and and we're going to transition into our our next episode uh, where we're going to focus on Israel and and focus on some theological issues around that. Uh, you know, and you know, God's covenant people, Holy Land, Promised Land, all those those terms that we're all so familiar with. Um, so, Miller, you think there's a good place to 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 break? Anything anything closing you want to want to add as far as uh, focusing on Islam and that portion of the conversation? Well, I think what you're seeing, I think what you're seeing in Israel is a couple of things. I think you're seeing a church being reminded that that these old strifes we thought were done with are not, that as much as Western culture tries to, tries to mask and tries to numb itself from the real dangers of this world, um, God's not going to let us get away with that. Uh, we're not, he's not going to let us get away with trying to live in Disneyland over here and entertain, entertain ourselves to death when atrocities are happening all over the world. I mean, what's going on in Israel is horrific, but it's absolutely nothing compared to what already has happened in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the death toll there is unfathomable. And so, you know, I think that as Christians, we bear a greater responsibility as those who seek to dwell in truth those that really care about our neighbor and don't just sort of, you know, turn a blind eye to what's going on there, but to be vigilant in prayer and to be serious even about and sober about our own lives in this world, that we live in this kind of world, that if there's one thing scripture calls us to as believers is watchfulness and vigilance and sobriety. And so I'm thankful for when things like this happen, I'm not thankful for the the suffering, for the death, for the atrocities, for the injustice. I'm not thankful for that, but I am thankful that God uses these things in a sense to rattle our cage, to wake us up and to get a whole, and to get our attention once again. So that, that becomes very important uh, to me. And I think it's something we can all learn from. Yeah. What a great closing word, you know, as, as Christians in the West, <clears throat> you know, I heard at one time that that the warfare that I think is being waged against uh, American Christianity is to put us to sleep, to get us to believe that there is no war, there is no battle. We could just show up and do the Sunday morning Christian thing, and God bless you, brother, and shake shake each other's hands and drive away in our Teslas, and, and life is good, and peachy king. And and no, we, we live in a world um, consumed by the fall place under a under a curse and, and evil will will prevail and we we close with the only hope is the gospel um you know the call is not necessarily to pick up uh weapons and and arm ourselves to the to the teeth but to proclaim the gospel in boldness uh even to the point where yeah we might you know they persecuted christ they're going to persecute us um, we never stop proclaiming the gospel. The only hope for Israel 
for the radicalized Jewish population, for for uh, the Muslim world, for the Western, you know, whatever we could categorize ourselves as agnostic, atheist, uh, you know, uh, Christian, put in air quotes. The only hope is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, pastors filling pulpits and teaching the word of God faithfully, uh, week in, week out, calling their people to obedience, equipping them for the work of the ministry, um, you know, both here and, and abroad. And so, um, great, great conversation. And I want to, I want to encourage you guys, part two is coming. Uh, this conversation's not done. We have a whole, uh, other, um, side of this conversation focused on on israel and that that theology that's behind that uh that is very significant uh to our understanding so i want to say thank you for listening to this episode of christ and kingdom please don't forget to like and share um this episode and uh remember to to tune in to red grace media live that airs on sundays at seven um and check out redgracemedia.com so with that god bless you guys amelia i'll see you next time